Welcome to the Mets pod. On today's show, we discuss what's left for the Mets. Maybe one more big bullpen arm. Also, Joe and I pick our favorite spring training storylines. As always, we close out the show answering your mailbag questions. So a reminder to subscribe to the Mets pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can watch on SMY's YouTube or wherever you get your shows. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Mets Pod. I'm your host, Connor Rogers, joined as always by my co-host, Joe DeMeo, and the offseason rolls on. Pitchers and catchers feels like it's going to be here before we know it. And we sit here and wonder, Joe, do the Mets have one more move in their pocket, whether it's a trade, whether it's a bullpen arm like a Zach Britton or an Andrew Chafin? Plenty is going on around baseball, but how are you doing, my friend? Doing great. Uh, excited to get to spring training. I mean, we're at about three weeks, I think, now to pitchers and catchers. So the offseason has basically run its course. There's, you know, a few things still still to happen throughout the league. Uh, like you said, we'll talk about if there's one more piece for the Mets, but we're getting close to getting, getting ready for baseball again. Absolutely. Today's a good day to dive into a lot of the mailbag questions. I feel like we're endlessly falling behind. You get millions of those every single week. So we will allocate plenty of time for those. We got a lot of good ones. Um, and we will get into a little bit of spring training talk as well. Some of the things that you and I are individually looking forward to as things ramp up down there. But before we get anywhere else, Joe, I think everybody's eyes are on what is left for the Mets right now, especially since the Correa deal fell through. I think it's pretty safe to say they're not entirely satisfied with this roster, although probably happy the way it shaped up. So I ask you, Joe, do you think one more bullpen arm? Because that's what's out there on the market. The bats are gone. The last show we did, it was Tommy Pham that's been added to this bench, and he will have some kind of significant role in the outfield. I'm not saying he's going to start every day. I'm not saying he's going to start 70% of the time, but he will play for the Mets. And now it just feels like really you know, rounding out the margins, trying to get maybe one more guy that you can trust in the sixth or seventh inning, protect yourself from injury. So where are you at? Where are you at on that right now, Joe? Especially between a high-end option in Chapin, who we've liked for a long time, and of course a guy like Britton that's viewed as more of a bounce-back candidate this year. I don't know that the Mets really need either of them. Would it be nice to add one? Of course. I, I think Andrew Chafin is probably still out there because he's still looking for a multi-year deal. And I'd be surprised, I think, a little bit if the Mets wanted to go multi-year on a reliever that, let's be honest, would probably fall, what, fourth, fifth on the pecking order. That doesn't feel like the the best allocation of, of the resources. But a guy like Zach Britton, if you're looking for a one-year, low-value, uh, incentive-based deal that's looking at a bounce back from a, a prior closer, I think that could make some sense. But I also think the Mets are content. And, and we talked about this a little bit last week. I, I think they're content having competition for those last two spots or three spots in the bullpen. They have a lot of arms with some talent. Uh, but I do think, you know, Billy Epler said it as well last week uh, that they're still talking to the agents for bullpen guys. And, you know, we'll, we'll see if they come through with one. But I think they're honestly probably fine with their team. I, it also, look at how the Mets have operated, right, in, in a sense where – Diaz is back on the big deal. No doubt about that. Adovino did get the two years, but when you look at Adovino's salary situation, he's at seven, 
0.2 million. They know what they have in house of Vadovino. I think they actually got a annual average discount because he's from here, wanted to return here. I think Adovino probably could have gotten a one-year $10 to $12 million deal somewhere. Instead, he takes the lower AAV, but he has the second year that's a player option if he wants to stay another year, uh, where his base salary actually goes down to 6.7. David Robertson is on a one-year deal. So you're right, Joe. The Mets are probably looking at the relief market and going, we'll pay high end. But we'll do it for two years max, more often than not one year, besides our guy Diaz, who is deemed by every single metric, the most valuable reliever essentially in baseball at this point. So that's a little bit different. And that's why a guy like him gets to reset the market. So I'm with you that I I like Chafin better, but that's not what the conversation is. I I think the conversation is where's the fit, where's the value, and Britain probably is more in line with that if anybody, but besides that, I think this is the New York Mets team that's heading into spring training. And some people listening might laugh at that and go, well, we could have sat here and said that last year and they, they came out of nowhere and got Chris Bassett. So you never rule out a trade in their back pocket, but the question is what trades are out there. So we will go into the spring training conversation, essentially assuming this is the team and this will most likely be the team up until what's going to be a very interesting trade deadline, especially since, I don't know if people heard, Artie Marino is no longer selling the Angels, which could change everything around Shohei Otani. But we will not go there just yet on this show. We'll get there eventually, maybe during the mailbag. So, Joe, as we head into spring training, and we will do a full preview, but let's have an appetizer right now. If you had to pick one storyline that constantly pops up in your head that you go, when spring training is on, I don't care about the Mets winning or losing per se. I care about this player or this storyline taking shape. What is it right now? It's the World Baseball Classic. And I'm going to try to get into the World Baseball Classic. I I haven't gotten into it the last couple. Um, everyone seems to love it. So I'm going to give it another fair shake this year. But for the Mets, it a whole lot of their players are going. I mean, Pete Alonso. Jeff McNeil, Brandon Nimmo is playing for Team Italy. Stalling Marte is supposedly on Team Dominican Republic, but the Mets may or may not allow that given he's coming off a of surgery. Uh, Lindor, obviously. Uh, Edwin Diaz is there. Mark Vientos is going. Omar Narvaez is going. Uh, that's just off the top of my head. There might even be a couple more in there. So they have a ton of guys going to the WBC. And what does that mean? More opportunity to get a look at these younger players. By the way, I was going to say Brett Beatty as one of the younger players. I think Eduardo Escobar is in the WBC too. So if that's the case, we had that conversation last week. Can Brett Beatty take the opening day third base job from Eduardo Escobar? You would lean no, but what if Escobar is away for two and a half weeks or whatever for the WBC and Beatty tears the cover off the ball? They like what they're seeing from him defensively at third base. Does that sway the Mets a little bit. So I think it's it's a good opportunity to get a look at some of these younger players. Ronnie Mauricio will be in camp because he's on the 40-man roster. So it's just the opportunity for different players to get at bats and and show what they got and, and try to impress the big league staff. And Joe, even if they can't, a guy like Beatty is the perfect example, right? Even if they can't take the job, because Buck is an old school guy. Maybe Buck operates under the measure of if a veteran just isn't here, he can't lose his job, right? He's not, it's not that he's underperforming or that somebody's just performing so well in a, in a, you know, very uh, flash in the pan kind of area. 
what Beatty does in the spring matters so significantly because as we discussed on last week's show, Escobar's play fell off a cliff in May. And as a veteran, you can have a bad month, especially when you're as established as somebody like Eduardo Escobar. But it pretty much got worse in June or was just as bad. You can't have two bad months. So if you're Brett Beatty, you come up and you have, let's say, a good spring, not a we can't keep the guy off the roster spring, because I think that would just about surprise anybody. And it would be a great turn of events, but a really, really good spring. I think that makes the seat a little hotter where when Escobar inevitably has some struggles, there is a young guy that has power that can not just have over the fence power, Joe, but a guy that can hit it in the gaps, a guy that can hit it to the wall, a guy that can drive in runs in a big spot kind of situation. We know that's what Beatty's been built up as since he was in high school, since he was a first round pick for the Mets. That makes the decision when you do decide to give him that call up, it might come a little earlier because you already saw it in spring. You feel good about, yeah, you only had a cup of coffee in the majors last year, but now you've seen it in spring. I'm sure Beatty is going to be just fine in AAA. I don't really have any doubts there. So I'm with you that there is opportunity, even if the opportunity isn't, hey, there's a job up for grabs. It could be more so, hey, this job could be yours come May or June. Yeah, it gives the opportunity to set up for for the rest of the season by getting that extended look, impressing the staff. And like you said, Eduardo Escobar struggles. They can make that turn. And another name that I just didn't mention at all is since Omar Narvaez is playing in the WBC, Francisco Alvarez should have the opportunity to catch. And if I am the Mets, I'm not afraid to have him catch some Verlander, catch some, catch some Scherzer. Like you have to see where, where he's at and, Verlander and Scherzer are the type of guys that are going to give you that honest feedback if you're the Mets. We may not hear exactly what they feel publicly, but put them behind put them behind the plate for one start of each of those guys and have them you know report back and say, I like this, I didn't like this. And it could just help with Alvarez's growth defensively. And I know everyone's obsessed with kind of having him as the DH because they're lacking power and he has the potential to give that power. But they need to make sure they get his defensive growth to where they want to uh, from a player development benchmark standpoint. So if you could get him some reps with the top pitchers, I think that could only help his self-confidence. If he needs any help with self-confidence, uh, that could help as he likely starts the year in AAA. But it'll be good to see him catch some uh, top flight big league arms. I'll stick with the same theme as you, and this is our very early spring training look ahead. There will be a lot of current storylines, big league club storylines, of course, the stars of this team, how the bullpen shakes out, how the back end of the rotation shakes out, and what you do with guys like McGill and Peterson. We're going to get through all of that. But Joe, admittedly, this podcast was born out of uh, your devotion to the Mets farm system and the draft and team building. And that's by nature, what as analysts, what you and I are. And that's why I gravitate the same way as you and think of the opportunity for young players. How written off has Mark Vientos become at this point? To the point where I actually think it's a good thing at this point. When you hear people discuss the right-handed DH and everybody smashes their head against the wall that Darren Ruff will be back in camp, they, uh, we're guilty of this, come up with scenarios that, hey, Escobar can be a right-handed DH sometimes. Mark Canna can do it. 
you're basically playing with all these puzzle pieces and trying to make something work, but it always feels like you're missing that piece. And I'm not expecting this. Let me be very, very clear. But I would love if Mark Vantos got to spring training and hit four or five home runs and just said, you know what? Am I, I'm not a complete player. I might never be a complete player. I'm not a perfect player. But at the end of the day, I'm six foot four. I'd love to see him come into camp over 200 pounds. He's a big, strong guy, but get even bigger and stronger. And it seems like there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of good social media stuff going around. He's working hard in the offseason to get bigger and stronger and say, I can be a right-handed bat on this team that can hit for power in certain instances. And it's crazy to me how we just forget and everybody forgets, probably because he did struggle when called up. And to be quite honest, I don't even think he was put in great opportunities very often or great situations to succeed with the Mets when he was called up to the majors last year. I mean, this is somebody that hit 24 home runs in AAA last year, 24 home runs as a 22 year old. So I'm excited to see what Vientos can do because he has to be thinking in his head, nobody after so long, I was the guy. Now nobody even talks about me. There's no discussions. What can I do down there in Port St. Lucie to earn something, even if it's to keep my name in their brains when I get sent back down to AAA, that I can come up and help when somebody inevitably gets hurt or struggles. We campaigned for Vientos for like most of July last year. And it was too and late then, when they called him yeah, up. Yeah, and it was too late and they already acquired Ruff and they didn't want they didn't want to play Mark Vientos. That's what it comes down to. For whatever reason, Buck was not comfortable putting him in a lineup with any sense of regularity. And for a young player who is used to being, you know, at the middle of the lineup every day from high school when the Mets, and then when the Mets drafted him, he was an everyday player coming up and being a less than part-time player. And then whenever you're thrust in once every week and a half, you're expected to produce. That's putting a lot on a young kid. So I think Vientos is a great talking point and, and a, a good option of someone that, you know, like you said, is maybe being overlooked forgotten about a little bit and he has the potential to be a 20 home run bat like that's in there we've seen it at the minor league level uh the power matches the exit velocity data matches so everything in the minor leagues matches that he should be able to hit for power at the big league level and it's just an opportunity in st lucy like you said to maybe get more of a look and like you said keep keep his name in buck and the mets front office's brain when maybe darren ruff isn't any good and doesn't make the team or Tommy Pham ends up getting thrusted into everyday outfield action because Starling Marte goes on the IL and now he can't just be your right-handed DH. Then that opens up, you know, potentially the door for someone like Vientos. Without a doubt. And people forget Joe in 30 less at bats than Darren Ruff in the majors last year, Vientos hit one more home run than Ruff. So can't forget one the, zero. Num the numbers do not the numbers do not lie for Vientos. We can't wait for spring training. We'll have you covered every step of the way when things get ramped up down there. And one last topic for us, Joe, before we get into a heavy mailbag here, Hall of Fame announcement is today as we sit here and record. So we're not going to get into necessarily the prediction game and the, the numbers game, but an open conversation, whether he gets in or not. Is Carlos Beltran a Hall of Famer in your opinion? Because quite personally, I've been surprised how much discourse has had to be had around this but i want to know what you think of, of beltron's chances not even chances but really just how you would vote 
he's a hundred percent. I don't think it's close, and, right? Yeah, and the and the only reason he's not going to make it on the first ballot is because of the Astro sign stealing scandal. That's really what it comes down to. Is he's going to get held back because some writers are not going to vote for him for that? And uh, I get it. Like, look, everyone has their own right to vote and how they vote, and some people look at morals and some people look at off field more than others. When I look at a Hall of Fame ballot, I've gone to Cooperstown a couple of times. I don't know if you have. It's a wonderful museum. Keyword, it's a museum. And I think it should be, you should be celebrating, not even necessarily celebrating, but recognizing all parts of baseball history, mm -hmm. positive and negative. If you go to a science museum or a history museum is probably a better example, bad things happen in history and they're in those museums. So like to me, Barry Bond should be in the Hall of Fame. Roger Clemens should be in the Hall of Fame. You can't tell the story of baseball without Mark McGuire and Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens as well. Like those guys, the steroid era, it was obviously not a great time in baseball history, but in a way it saved baseball in the late nineties post strike. Uh, I think you're kind of like leaving an era out and then Beltran just, you know, the sign stealing thing, but he's one of the best switch hitting center fielders in baseball history. So he's projecting right now, I think at, 50 something per, uh, percent of the vote. So it looks like he might be over 50, which puts him in position, I think, to make the haul in the next year or two. But for whatever reason, he's just probably not going to get in on the first ballot. But uh, when I walked around the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, I looked at a bunch of plaques. I didn't see on any of them, you know, what number ballot they got in on. You either get in or you don't. And Carlos Beltran's a Hall of Famer. So hopefully they get him in. And a shout out to Billy Wagner. He belongs in the Hall of Fame too. I'm with you. It's. Interesting how underrated Beltron has become in a way. Beltron, let's put it like this. In today's game, because Beltron made his debut in 98 with the Royals. He did play until 2017. So he had basically a 20-year career, which is really unbelievable when you think about it. Yeah. But obviously the prime of that career, you could argue, was, oh man, let's say 2001 with the Royals. And it really extended all the way he was an all-star you know, even 35, 39. So I'd say until 2012. Today's analytics era, Joe, to me, and I know you'd side with this, would be so much even more in favor for what Beltron brings to the team because of his extremely, extremely rare combo. Basically what I consider in baseball, and this is a very uh, simple view, but the rare hat trick of, defense athleticism and power and to be in the elite tier of all three of those for that long it's just absolutely insane you don't even have to really get to the accolades but if you want to nine-time all-star won a world series was the al rookie of the year in 99 three-time gold glover three years in a row with the mets 2006 to 2008 all three of his gold gloves are with the mets two-time silver slugger and the roberto clemente award in 2013 but just the amount of times joe he consistently was able to swipe 20 bags and hit 20 home runs and the numbers are not even that flat line i mean in 2002 he stole 35 bases hit 29 home runs uh in 2004 he had 38 home runs and 42 steals obviously had some mammoth years with the mets as well highest ops was 982 in 2006 after that slow start he comes back in 2006 and just absolutely rakes he was a very, very unique player, Joe.
Carlos Beltran was the definition of a five tool player. Like mm-hmm. we talk about it as this kind of like rare. It's like thing. a mirage. It now. is rare. Yeah. yeah. It there's very few that you could say truly have all five tools, and Carlos Beltran did. Um, we all know what it is, right? I don't. I don't think if you if you spoke to any writer that did not vote for Carlos Beltran, other than the writers that vote for nobody uh, for whatever which reason, is the, the, like, which is the dumbest. It's, and don't don't yeah. give him a ballot, by the way. Don't give him a ballot. Yeah. Yeah. But if you talk to anyone that doesn't vote for Beltron, I guarantee none of them have a baseball case as to why they're not voting for him. It's got to be purely because of, you know, the Astro science dealing scandal. And I get it, but he'll get in eventually and, you know, hopefully sooner than later. All right. You're listening to the Mets pod. A reminder to subscribe to the Mets pod at Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can watch on SMY's YouTube channel. Yes, we are there. You can leave a comment, get in on the action. Uh, or always tweeted us your mailbag questions as well if you want to get it on the show. But essentially, wherever you get your podcasts, the Mets pod lives there. So subscribe, and you will never, ever miss a show, especially throughout the offseason. Let's get into the mailbag, Joe. I have to say, I'm going to be honest, and maybe it's because the spending is o- over by default at this point because there's not much left on the market. This was the most uh, diverse group of questions we've gotten. It wasn't 40 questions about one player. And don't get me wrong, we love those all the same, but we can only fit one name on the show when you do that. We got a lot of unique questions here. So let's start out. This one is from Johnny, who said, if you had to pick one of these great seasons to for sure happen, which would it be? Season number one is that Pete hits 50 home runs this year. Season number two is that Lindor hits 300 with 30-plus home runs. Johnny said, Pete seems like the obvious choice at first glance, but Lindor is tempting because I feel like Pete has a high floor in terms of power. What do you think, Joe? I think it's really easily Francisco Lindor. I thought that was the runaway as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Lindor doesn't hit 300, so I don't know what world we're getting in the best 300. Let me change it then. I want to make this harder for you. Pete Pete hitting 60 home runs flat, 60 home runs flat, or the Lindor season. That's Mm -hmm. hard, right? Yeah, that makes it that that adds a different layer to it. The thirty plus, like, are we talking thirty eight or thirty nine? Are we talking thirty one or thirty two? Yeah, uh, that definitely is a tough one when you when you expand Pete out because fifty to me that doesn't seem like what what's he going to hit forty two otherwise? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like if he hits forty two or forty three, like okay, seven more home runs versus Lindor hitting what four thirty forty points above his career average and hitting over 30 home runs while providing gold glove defense at shortstop. I still think I lean Lindor, but when you up Pete's home run total to like legendary status, it makes it a uh, a much harder conversation. I think what's tricky for me is, uh, and I is it'd be so hard, it would take so long to figure it out, how many shortstops have hit 30 home runs, 30 plus home runs, and batted 300, especially in, in this recent era. And I'm sure there's guys that have done it. One of the first that came to mind for me that I Googled uh, was Hanley. Hey, A-Rod. Uh, A-Rod, of course. Sure. Yeah. Hanley Ramirez, when he was 24 with the Marlins, he hit 33 home runs and batted 301. I don't think he ever did that again, though. His power numbers were, or it was either one or the other. Getting to both of those is so hard. So Hanley Ramirez did it with the Marlins. Uh, Alex Rodriguez would be a really interesting case, especially the fact that, I mean, we know how much weight he eventually gained and moved to third base when he came to the Yankees, but when he was a shortstop, yeah. So A-Rod in 1996, 
And this is just like, this blows my mind every time I read it. Cause I honestly forget how great of a baseball player he was because he's just a goofy guy on TV. 20 years old, Joe with the Mariners, a rod hit 36 home runs and batted 358 as a 20 year old. In That's a full insane. season, he played 146 games. He batted 358. His OPS was 1,045. It's That's just crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, but I mean, that goes to won... show you like where yeah. this tier is, right? Of 30 home runs right. and 300 from a gold glove caliber shortstop. If Francisco Lindor hit 333 home runs, probably driving in 100 plus, he is running away with the MVP in the National yes. League. So if Pete hits 55, 60 home runs, you could, there might be an argument for him somehow not to be the MVP. Uh, I think Lindor wins it with that number. So give me Lindor, and I'll take the 40 to 42 from Pete. Just to clarify, Lindor's never done it. Uh, he has hit over 300 twice his first two years in Cleveland. He hit 313 and 301, but he, he maxed out at 15 home runs in those two years. He hit 12 and then 15. The year he hit, uh, the closest he's been in 2019, he hit, 32 home runs and batted 284, which is dangerously close. That's about a hot streak away from doing yeah. it. It's crazy too the, with the Mets. I mean, Lindor hit 26 home runs and batted 270 last year. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, a great I, year. I'll say it like this, and I, I don't mean to keep beating this drum, but I have to use him as an example. With a Correa in this lineup around him to add on to it, I, I would actually think he's got a real shot. Because there's so much protection, he'd see so many pitches. It's just, I mean, we'll see. It, but I think that's the point to answer Johnny's question. Pete hitting 50 home runs is wildly impressive, and we've already seen him do it. A Gold Glove caliber shortstop in this era. Now let's let's factor in the sh the defensive changes, rule changes. We're gonna see how many points that adds to certain batting averages. I think you and I lean on yeah. the side that a guy like Jeff McNeil, who's already won a batting title will actually be even better with the way he sprays the ball around the yard. Yeah, I think it, you're going to see an uptick in batting average. I don't know how significant it's going to be because we have to see what these rules entirely entail. Like, I just know that it's like you can't just have that guy in deep right field and put everybody on one side. But, like, if he's one step off the base when the pitcher delivers, can he then shift after the pitcher delivers and just take a few strides to the left and now you're on – the other side of the bag. I don't entirely know. Maybe that's way more clear than I'm aware of, but I want to see it in action. Uh, but from all indications, it sounds like we should see an uptick in batting average in baseball, which is going to be good for some people. It's some people, uh, look, yeah. And it's good to just put the ball in play and have a chance. Like it, it does stink. Like I'm, I was kind of anti banning the shift, but at the same time, it also does kind of stink when you hit a 108 mile an hour grounder through the hole and there's the second baseman is, 30 feet into right field and just catches and throws you out of first. That kind of stinks. That was my biggest stance is you can't have a second outfielder out there. It, yeah. it looks ridiculous. It changes the entire sport. And like you said, Joe, it's um, not rewarding. I mean, things that should be a hit things. That, and I hate, I, I don't hate expecting batting expected batting average can drive you up a wall. If you just constantly look at it too much, but there are scenarios where it's like, come on, that's that's not baseball to me anymore. And this is a good transition to our next question from Steve Miller. He said, thoughts on Lindor's deal now? Overpay, bargain, or fair market? Got to compare him to last season's free agents, though. Not this year. And I, 
So that second part, I don't agree with Joe and Steve always sends us great stuff, but Lindor's deal, part of doing an in-house extension, which they traded for Lindor and extended him when he was under contract is projecting the future. It's not projecting the now you can do a deal. And this happens all the time. A deal can be done with a guy that is an, in, is an in-house extension. And at the time you look at it and go, I mean, it's always easy to draw back to football. When Patrick Mahomes signed his extension, everybody, or Josh Allen, they're looking at it and going, oh my God, that much money for a quarterback. And then two years later, players that are half as good as them are making way more. And that is part of the front office's job in every sport is to project the future of the market. And Lindor's market is a gold glove in his prime, in his 20s, shortstop that hits for power and is a leader of the team. You look at where the free agent market went this year, I think it was a fair market deal for Lindor. I don't think it was a bargain. I don't think it was an overpay anymore. I think it's right in the middle when you look at a million shortstops hit free agency. They got outside of Correa, who originally got an insane deal from the Giants, 12 years, $360 million or whatever it was. The shortstop market has exploded where Lindor is just right in that market. So when you when you think back when Lindor was signing with the Mets, um, he was obviously signing a year before free agency, which by proxy means you need to be aggressive in your offer to get him to stay and not go see see through free agency. Um, obviously, when you look at what Corey Seager signed for and Marcus Semien signed for, at that point you're like the Lindor deal really checks out in a big way. When you look at this year's deals, the length is longer, the AAV is trimmed down, so it's just a matter of kind of what do you prioritize? And I think Lindor being at a slightly higher AAV than guys like Trey Turner and Xander Bogart, who I think both were in the upper 20s or maybe right around 30. Uh, Lindor had a few more million a year, but you're trimming three years off of the length. And Lindor's only a met until his uh, 36, age 36 or age 37 season rather so that's than the big difference. age 41. So that's the big difference in why I think it ultimately is fair market value. Uh, kind of like you said, uh, just, it's just a matter of how you're looking at these contracts. Do you care more about what the average annual value is, or do you care more about the length and, and where the deal actually ends up? Because it is more likely that Lindor will see through the 10 years of that deal on, you know, a really high end, uh, uh, performance level, whereas a guy like Trey Turner, whose game is largely based on his speed, he has some pop, and he's going to be a pain in the pain in the neck to deal with here for the next few years. But when he gets to the age where Lindor's deal would be ending, he still has four more years left. So at that point, you have to imagine a, a steep decline coming and a lot of financial commitment at that point. So I guess the more I talk myself into it, the Lindor deal is probably my favorite of them because you and I consistently prioritize avoiding term. It's what we've always done. We, we, tr and there are certain ways that you navigate it differently, right? Like when they originally drew up, for instance, the Nimmo deal is a perfect example. And it, we don't even like the Nimmo deal. We like that Nimmo's back. We don't like the deal. There's a big difference. The Nimmo deal is low AAV but it goes on forever and there will be a time i guarantee it where that is a really bad deal but steve cohen will not care about brandon nimmo's 20 million dollars in 2028 or whatever it is it's just a, right. 2030 whatever it is it, yeah what we're trying to show is the structure 
Xander Bogarts, sure, his base salary is only $25 million a year compared to Lindor's, you know, 33, 34, but he's playing shortstop or under contract to be the shortstop for the Padres at 40 years old. That's an issue. Trey Turner, under contract to be a shortstop at 40 years old. There are countless examples of guys on deals like that where I'd rather just pay Lindor more money per year, but get the most out of the contract. The Mets got him, you know, his first season with the Mets, he was 27. And like you said, Joe, his last season with the Mets, he will be, I think, turning 37. Those four years are really, really important when looking at the structure of these deals. So I'm not, once again, not saying the Lindor deal is great or a good deal. I'm just saying it's within the market expectations when for so long it was looked at as, you know, this black hole of a deal. The market just changed this year, right? Like if you just think back the last year, Corey Seager got the same type of deal, 10, 350, I think it was. So he, I think he actually got a little more than Lindor got um, from the Rangers. But this year, for whatever reason, the shortstop market was much longer, stripped down the AAV. And, you know, that, that's just where the market stood. But I think Lindor, like I said, ha has the best opportunity to see through almost all, if not all, of that contract. Like maybe the last year is, dang, that kind of stinks we have 37-year-old Lindor that's not playing so well. I don't think you're looking at, you know, barring some uh, bad injury. I don't think you're looking at multiple years of kind of dreading he's still on the books. Without a doubt. And you're right. Seager got more per year. Seager averages about $1.5 million more uh, per year. And their deal runs out. It's the same exact structure of the deal. They both are up in 2031 at age 37 years old. So, yeah, it's just a matter of what kind of structure you're looking for and, and how the market tends to turn. All right. Let's move on to our next question. This one from... YMG, who asks, now that Artie Marino is no longer selling, does this change the Mets' chances of getting Otani? I don't know if YMG is indicating uh, that it lessens or enhances the chances of the Mets getting Otani. But, Joe, how do you think, more importantly, that Artie Marino holding on to this team? Poor Angels fans. I know they are not happy to hear that news. Um, how does that impact the Otani market? I think it kind of verifies that Otani is going in the free agency because there was a word there was word that one of the prospective buyers of the Angels was a, a Japanese person who has oodles of money that was going to be prepared to convince Otani with a huge payday. And um, I just don't think Artie Moreno is as committed to truly trying to win. And that's what Otani wants. I mean, he's been publicly quoted that. August and September this year were a miserable time for him because the Angels were out of the race and he was kind of just going through the motions. I think his desires are to win. And so I don't know how much it increases the Mets, the Mets specifically chances, but I think it just increases the chances that Otani is either available at the trade deadline or surely in free agency next winter uh, where the Mets will be competing with the Dodgers, the Padres. Because remember, the Padres ended up giving – Bogart's big money, but they were trying to give Aaron Judge 400 and something million dollars. They were trying to give Trey Turner over 400 million dollars. So they were trying to give away this money. And, you know, that 500 million dollar number, that seems like that is so clearly coming Shohei Otani's way. And I think he's going to have the choice. Does he want to come to New York? Some people think he prefers the West Coast because that was seemingly his preference when he originally came over from Japan. But now that he's in America, has that changed? Uh, that certainly, you know, we do change the way we feel over time as human beings. So I think largely it'll be the biggest deal probably gets him. 
but it's going to be a fascinating bidding war when you take a motivated Steve Cohen, a motivated Dodgers, and a potentially motivated Padres and just have them pit against themselves for one player. Yeah, and if you're representing Otani, hearing all that, you got to do whatever you can to get him to free agency. There's no, there's no signing a deal. Even if he was traded right after this show, there is no signing a deal. And I think on the Angels side of things, it just makes you wonder, how do you not move him? Do the Angels think they're winning the World Series this year? Because nobody else does. So yeah. when you look at it like that, I mean, maybe you ride out the beginning of the year, you see what happens. There's always surprises in sports and baseball, especially. But it feels like Otani is going to be Juan Soto of this year's deadline, where everybody's firing up the trade projection machine and figuring out how, what makes sense for this guy that is a the rental of all rentals. Because Otani yeah. should never, ever sign anything until he gets the free agency. So... and. And when you talk about Juan Soto, like that, that's a different market because he had totally. another couple years of control. So 100%. that's why the haul was the way it was. I think if Shoyotani is traded at the trade deadline, I think people will be surprised at what the return is. It's not going to be nearly as heavy as it should be for a player of Shoyotani's quality. And, you know, we'll, we'll see how involved the Mets want to get. You want to be smart about it. Yes, you want to win the World Series this year. And if they do, you're not going to see me kill them at all for making a trade for Otani at the deadline, I promise. But at the same time, you want to be cognizant of the fact that what you're giving up, you're okay losing this level of talent to have a guy potentially for two months. Because if you get him and you don't make a deep run or you don't win the World Series and he walks in free agency and goes to the Dodgers or the Padres or just decides he doesn't want to be in New York, I think you're it's a calculated risk with what prospect capital you're giving up when in theory, a couple months later, you could just give him all the money in the world and convince him to come. And you also keep those prospects. So it'll be a, it'll be interesting to see where the Mets are at come July. Like is the need for the bat that we talk about, we talk about how dire it is. And like, I think it's kind of been blown out of proportion a little bit, but is the need that bad? Like what if Francisco Alvarez comes up and is a rookie of the year who's, a rookie of the year candidate or Brett Beatty comes up and shows what he showed in the minor leagues. Like there's an opportunity for those guys to step up. And if they don't, then obviously you could turn to the trade market and uh, see what the price is on Otani. Without a doubt. It, it gives you time to see what you have. I mean, Beatty last year hit 19 home runs in Binghamton. Uh, he's going to project as a guy that gives you power. Alvarez is projecting as one of the best power bats in the entire minor league system of baseball right now. So, and Hey, if it doesn't work out as soon as you hoped it would, then absolutely. You're going to make that call and, and go down that road or one of those roads to get improvement. This one from Gino five, two, four. He asked what major battles are left on the roster to be settled in spring training. I honestly think it's just pretty much in the bullpen. Long I think relief. the rotate. <laughs> yeah. Long relief and the last like spot or two, like John Curtis and Bryce Montes de Oca guy that we like on the show, Steven Ridings, um, all these kind of power arms that they brought in. I think those guys will be competing for a spot or two. And then you have the uh, wild card. Uh, I'm sorry, the wild card of the bullpen, Zach Green, the rule five pick from the Yankees, who the Mets need to carry on their active roster all year or offer back to the Yankees for $50,000 and the Yankees will just take him back. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see Green in spring training. He's definitely someone I'm keeping my eye on. 
I kind of am a Rule 5 guy going back to like Brad Emis. I remember wanting the Mets to take Brad Emis in the Rule 5 draft, and they actually did. And he lasted like two weeks on the roster. And then we, ne- we never heard from Brad Emis ever again. Uh, but I'd be interested to see what Zach Green has. And, you know, Billy Epler coming from the Yankees, uh, he probably has some insight onto what Zach Green ultimately is. So uh, the bullpen is really it. I think the offense is largely set. I think the rotation's set. Like, unless there's injuries, I don't think there's a whole mess of competition on this team in spring training. Yeah, with Green, I mean, a former eighth-round pick of the Yankees and last year as a 25-year-old in AAA, he was 9-0, 3-4-2 ERA, and the most important metric to me, Joe, he almost struck out 13 batters over nine. I mean, I think that's what the number they're probably looking at and going, how can we get this to translate to being an impactful bullpen arm? All right, this next one is from Ed Quigley. He said, thoughts on Cohen's new group, Queen's future and the development around City Field. So I think there's... Uh, and I know they're doing, I think, open Zoom sessions on a lot of this. I don't open really have person sessions like going oh, to you could just show field. up like That's you could sign cool. up. I think I'm pretty sure you could sign up. And I know, uh, you know, some people like met Steve Cohen at the last one. And suppose like it happened at like the Piazza Club. And supposedly Steve Cohen was just like sitting in a chair hanging out like in the middle of, man of everybody. The yeah, man of the people. But, you know, look, we we all want it to be a better area around city field. I think we get this question all the time. I yeah. feel like every couple of weeks, someone throws in a question, like what would you do around city field? And like, I think of Pittsburgh, when I went to Pittsburgh, that mm-hmm. was a blast. Like they just closed down the streets around and you know, there's all these things to do, but I think, you know, the vision is casinos, hotels, restaurants, bars, um, things like that. The only thing I hope, I really like the parking situation as someone that drives to City Field. Same. Yeah. And and uh, I hope they don't trim too, too much of the parking, especially having a mom, you know, with uh, that's handicapped. I need handicapped parking for her when I take her to the game. So hopefully they're not a trimming lot of people do. too much. of Yeah. So hopefully they're not trimming too much of the parking away. But of course, I want the area around City Field to be much more of an experience where I feel like I could go to go to city field for a day. And it's not just like, I'm going to the game a couple hours early. I'm going to hang out in the parking lot, have a drink or two, go into the stadium, enjoy the game. Like it should be something where you want to go for a whole day, spend the day there, have, you know, drinks at a bar, go to a restaurant and then hit up the game at night. And that'll also be good for, you know, people that come into New York to see games, uh, you know, that fly in. That's a great point. I I love seeing there's an effort to do something with this mm-hmm. and make it happen. And you're right, Joe, there's a fine line of, of perfecting it. Um, obviously making the infrastructure effective. You need getting out of city field. And I take the train about 90% of the time, but when we do drive, I'm with you that I like how easy and seamless the parking can be when you get there early and hanging out in the parking lot, tailgating or whatever you want to do. And you got to make sure that that infrastructure remains competent but then there's the side of it. You brought up Pittsburgh. I haven't gone to a game in Pittsburgh, but for me, the closest one, I, I've gone to a game in Seattle. And Seattle is set up where basically all their stadiums are in the same neighborhood area. And within that is old school bars and restaurants. I and mean, everything's very walkable. And I really enjoyed it. Just be able to go out and, and eat and drink before or after the game. Um, and it's great for the 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 neighborhood. I mean, you have a built-in economy with all these people coming to the game that are going to eat before the game or go out and drink after the game. A casino is a whole nother ball game that 
that's a very fine line, a very, very fine line of making that work. But the most important thing to me is the effort being put in because it's long overdue. It can change the area. It can, I never like saying the Mets can take over the town. I think that's hyperbole when people get into that kind of war and it doesn't really mean anything, but I think it makes the Mets even more significant in terms of that area meaning something um, in Queens. So with that, we'll wrap up our mailbag. But Joe, we are getting closer and closer to pitchers and catchers. Real baseball will be here. So closing thoughts on today's episode of the Mets pod. Bring us baseball. I want to fast forward these next couple Same. weeks. Football's over. Um, I don't. I don't even know what. I didn't even know football was a thing anymore. Like, oh, it just ended football. for you. <laughs> yeah, it 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 weirdly just ended a couple days ago. So, um, yeah, I'm ready for baseball. So bring it on. Let's get the spring training. If the Mets want to sign a Zach Britton or an Andrew Chafin to help us with some content here over the next week or two, like much appreciated. Go ahead and do that. Uh, but if not. I'm excited about seeing this team in spring training and seeing what these young players have to offer. And then, of course, seeing what Justin Verlander looks like in a Mets uniform. What does Kodai Senga look like in a Mets uniform? Like, there's a lot of things to be really excited about, and I just want to get there. I'm with you as well. I'm with you as well. It's going to be really exciting. And we will be here uh, with you guys every step of the way going forward, all the way up until opening day and throughout the entire season. So one more reminder to subscribe to the Mets pod. And you'll never miss a show. Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can watch us on SMY's YouTube or wherever you get your shows. Thanks so much, everybody. We'll catch you next week.